Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can check out new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. If you missed an episode or want to get more information about the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Stanford Crane, CEO of World Moto Clash. Stanford, welcome to the show. Hey Kevin, great to be with you. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I, I think what you're what you're doing is is really cool and innovative. But maybe before we kind of get into um, exactly what World Moto Clash is, let's get to know you a little bit better and maybe cover your background and kind of where you grew up. Sure, that sounds great. Yeah, my uh, I uh, I had the greatest parents in the world. <laughs> okay. And I say that because my dad was a test pilot, if you can imagine that, during the Century Series in the 50s. Oh, wow. And uh, we would have all kinds of famous people show up at the house who were either big-time pilots, you know, Chuck Yeager, uh, Ivan Kinchlow, Scott Crossfield. Uh, Then we'd have famous celebrities, uh, you know, Danny Kaye used to show up. He was a big pilot. Most people didn't know that. He loved hanging out at Edwards with the guys and. You know, he was just enamored with what was going on. And if you think back, in the 50s, they were going Mach 2 and Mach 2.5. I mean, some of the fastest airplanes ever built were were done 60 years ago. That's awesome. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, and, 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 you know, the SR-71 really was designed out there in in what was called the Skunk Works. Uh, And my father was a private test pilot for Bendix because they were doing the avionics for the for the uh, fighter so he did F101 104 106 B58 uh and the F4 was his last project and then he he started his own company he was an entrepreneur so I grew up in kind of an entrepreneurial environment got you uh you know, my dad was, a, you know, just kind of like one of these Steve Canyon type guys who'd let us do anything. I mean, we would do crazy stuff like we had a little uh, life raft kind of rowboat thing. And my father let us take us out in the in the St. Lawrence Seaway, my brother and I. And I think I was only like 12 years old. Sure, sure. And he's like, yeah, just let him go out and hang around and have some fun out there. And so, so that's what I mean by the greatest parents. They were not only... Uh, great, loving, and insightful parents, but they gave us a sense of adventure, and that adventure was cool. And uh, and you had responsibilities, but you know, taking a little risk wasn't a bad thing. And I think that's an important thing for me as an entrepreneur to have kind of grown up that way. That a lot of people are always afraid to, you know, gee, that's the unknown out there. Well, a lot of the most fun things are, are out there. So, so I grew up in New Jersey, and then my uh, my dad, he was a very big fan of of George Marshall and George Catlin Marshall, as many people know, was the only he commanded all Allied forces in World War Two. Oh wow, that's and, awesome! Yeah, and he was the only professional soldier ever to win the Nobel Peace Prize for the Marshall Plan. Oh, very cool. So he, my father said, "Look, George Marshall's the great. Anybody who could command De Gaulle, sure, <laughs> Eisenhower, MacArthur, <laughs> all these." maniacs and get them all to, you know, subvert along Montgomery and get them all to work together. And, uh, and it reminds me of a story that uh, Marshall told where he, he asked uh, de Gaulle if the French people could be counted on once they invaded in, uh, in France to act in unison. And he said, how can you count on any country that has 269 cheeses? <laughs> so, 
but anyway, so so I went to a VMI to study electrical engineering, and and my cousin was actually at Washington and Lee, which was adjacent to there, and a good friend of mine from high school went there, and they were in the uh, journalism school. Okay. So I went over and I started a a program where we would exchange students and some of the people, you know, they were basically liberal arts school. We were, uh, you know, a liberal arts and science school at, at Virginia Military Institute. And, and so I went over and I was part of their radio show. Now, the way I did it, I kind of, you know, I didn't stretch the truth, but I just told selective truths. Because we were at, all about the honor system at VMI, so there was no way you could lie. But I said to my uh, head of my department, Colonel Nichols, I said, Colonel Nichols, I'm going over to, to work in the radio department over at Washington and Lee. And he thought, oh, that's great. And he thought I'd be studying <laughs> FM modulation or something. And what I did is I had a, had a radio show over there, and it was just a blast. You know, I had all kinds of people on. This is before we had those delay things. And, and you'll appreciate this, that I once had on the Lexington High School cheerleaders, if you can imagine what that <laughs> just went crazy. We had all these kids calling up. I'm like, oh, my God. But, but we did a lot of fun stuff there. And uh, I, I was always a little frustrated with VMI in the sense that it's a very small school. People don't, don't realize how small it is, really. It's only about 1,500 students. Okay. And so in our, in our electrical engineering classes, and this is the good news and the bad news, well, I would typically be in a class with like eight people or less. Okay. And so it, it was really good. You couldn't hide in the class. Everybody, sure. Everybody had to contribute on, on a daily basis. So that was kind of the, the negative part for me. But but uh, I, I really learned electronics before I, I got to college because my dad had an avionics company. And so that was part of my frustration a little bit because our – you know, as, as many professors do, they want to stick with the fundamentals. We're not teaching you how to really build something here. We're teaching you the fundamentals of how things are eventually built. And to me, I was like, let's skip that part. Let's just skip it. I kind of got Gauss's Law, so let's go on from there. And I don't need to, you know, derive it 50 times. So so I was a little bit of a rebel there, but I played sports. I played football and baseball and lacrosse. And, and it was just a fabulous, fabulous education I, I, I couldn't have been happier but then I kind of went out and I did something very crazy because I I went and uh, I, I had written because of my you know exposure over at Washington and Lee in that journalism school uh, and Edward Albee used to be a writer in residence there and so forth but uh, he wrote Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in the zoo sure, and sure. very very accomplished uh, author and playwright but uh, I, I decided to write a screenplay. And the reason I did was because the movie Patton had come out and I, I got an opportunity to interview Frank McCarthy, who was the producer. And he was a general in, in Marshall's uh, staff in World War II. And when he met Patton, uh, and, and he was a wealthy kid from Beverly Hills. And so some of these people got made officers and so forth because of their connections and so forth. But he was a very gifted guy. He was a VMI grad. He was one of the producers on Brother Rat, which was a Broadway play at the time. And uh, when he met Patton, he told me in the interview I did with him, he only the only person he ever met that was more theatrical was Errol Flynn. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
he said, I knew I had to do a movie on this guy. And, and so what did he do? He went out and hired Edmund North and, and Francis Ford Coppola to write the script. Oh, wow. And so, and Coppola, this is really where Coppola got the idea to do Apocalypse Now. Oh, interesting. Okay. So when I, and, and basically because Patton was a professional soldier who was a warrior and, you know, when the war ended, he was like, what am I going to do? You know, because I'm a warrior. So what he was writing about with Charlie Sheen's character in Apocalypse Now was not about the draftees like Deer Hunter, but it was really about the professional soldier who was on a mission. And nothing can compromise that mission. So he he really took all of that learning from from uh, from Patton. But uh, long story short, so at this time I, I had written, I was in the process, I should say, of writing two scripts. Okay, interesting. My senior year, and I, I said to uh, General McCarthy, uh, uh, General, may I? Would it be possible for me to send you these scripts, and you could give me your thoughts? So I said, sure. So I, when I completed the scripts, I sent them out to him. And now I was working, you know, I think at that time I was working for ITT, but I forget. Uh, anyway, so I sent it out to him and he said, I don't, I can't do this one script because I don't really know anything about it. And I had written this script for, for Paul Newman and Robert Redford. And the reason I'd done that is I met uh, Newman at Briar Motorsports Park in, uh, in New Hampshire because a friend of mine was part of his crew interesting and he was such a great guy paul newman he you know after every day's races <laughs> he would break out the multiple cases of budweiser really <laughs> and everybody would sit around the barbecue <laughs> and drink too many budweiser's because he was sponsored by bud he always loved bud i was like paul can we get like a better beer than this he's like i love it i love it you'll love it great. i love that so I'm kind of curious then, like, what kind of got you into racing originally then? Like, it sounds like you kind of just grew up around it? Yeah, I my dad had the speed gene, of course, because of being a test pilot. Of course, sure. It, it was sort of funny. They used to ride motorcycles all He and Jaeger and all of those guys were, were riding motorcycles all the time because it was like the wildest, most fun thing you could do. And they were always driving hot cars. My father always would get these really hot cars, whether it was a Porsche or a some sort of a, a Mopar muscle car. And, and so we were always having fun with it. But he forbid me to ride motorcycles at that time because he said, you know, you're an athlete and you can really get hurt on these things. And I'm like, hey, how come you, you can do it, but you won't let us? Do? He goes, well, <laughs> as, soon as, you're, as soon as you're out of college, you know, as soon as you graduate, then you can go ahead and do it. So that's exactly what I did. Gotcha. <laughs> like, motorcycles to me were just magical. And, and this is not widely known, but uh, the the most attended exhibit at every single Guggenheim museum around the world, whether it's Bilbao or whether it's Las Vegas or Chicago or New York, the most attended exhibit was the art of the motorcycle. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, and, and it broke every record at every Bilbao. Now, the reason is, and the creative director at the Guggenheim said this, probably no other single object represented the Industrial Revolution and the, and the 20th century better than the motorcycle. I guess that makes a lot of sense then. Yeah, okay, I never thought of it like that, but that makes sense. Yeah, and, and the, for example, the first Indianapolis race was actually held with motorcycles. It wasn't held with cars. Oh, I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah, so so they, uh, 
and Glenn Curtis, for example, is a great pilot. He was a big motorcycle racer and, and, and then became a car racer too. But Nuvolari, who was a fabulous, you know, some say the greatest car racer ever, was also a championship motorcycle racer. And Mike Halewood and John Surtees, the only person to ever win the Formula One championship and the MotoGP championship, it was called, you know, 500cc back then. So I... Well, I, I had a race car, you know, that this guy, George Signal, was tuning for me, and he was on Paul's staff. And to me, the race car was like nothing compared to my motorcycles. And so I started racing bikes. At that time, I was also high-performance editor for BMW News. Okay. And so I was kind of using my engineering background to kind of translate some of the things that were going on technically at that time. And this was a really cool time because people were taking their – you know, street bikes, and the street bikes were big displacement bikes, amping them up, modifying them, and we created what was called Superbike. And, and it was tremendously exciting, uh, big crowds. I mean, I'm, I remember going to races where we had 100,000 people. Oh, wow. And and it was just the wildest thing you could do. And you're not inside the car. Like in the car where you put a couple wheels off and you drive back on and it's okay, you put the wheels off on the grass in a motorcycle, <laughs> and you're either on your head on sure. the way to the hospital, or <laughs> <laughs> totally you remember what happened. So anyway, that's how I got I got into it. I loved it. It's way more cost effective to race motorcycles than cars. Sure. So, um, for all the obvious reasons, I mean transportation and how many crew you need and everything. And, and it's more, to me, it's it's more of a, a camaraderie kind of thing versus cars. Cars, uh, it's not quite as clubby, if you will, that people won't come over and help you. I remember uh, my bike, I uh, was in a couple of uh, endurance races where my bike would break down. This is when we were doing all exotic stuff with the BMW. And literally people from competitive teams would come over and help our team to fix it. Oh, that's awesome. So it was that kind of great kind of thing but we were doing all kinds of crazy stupid things like the owner tony hallman of the indianapolis motor speedway decided he wanted to have a, a street race through Terre Haute, indiana on the fourth of july okay now, first of all it's you know like 900 degrees and 90 percent humidity in Terre Haute on fourth of july sure sure secondarily this is a street. It is literally a street. There, some guy ended up going through a window of one of the stores, and we were like, "Gee, this is okay." One of the braking zones we had was coming up over a hill, and then you had to go over railroad tracks on the brakes. And we probably had twenty percent of the field crashed in that turn. Wow! Because <laughs> as soon as you hit the railroad tracks, you lost all kinds of traction in the front wheel and tucked the front end. But, but it, that was a that was a tremendous. Uh, the 12 years that I had of racing uh, Battle of the Twins and Superbike, and I raced for Ducati. Uh, we we you know had the first 500 Panther in the United States, and we ended up going to the 24 Hours in Nelson Ledges with the famous Jonathan White, their top rider here, along with Cook Nielsen, and uh, and finishing fourth on a 500 cc bike in an open race. Wow, that's awesome! Congrats. Um, so it was it was literally a fantastic adventure. I was I was going over to Italy to meet with the people over there, and and uh, then I switched to Honda, and then eventually to Suzuki, and uh, and I learned that racing was really kind of not what I thought, and that 
the especially the Japanese, not only the Japanese factories, Ducati was the same way, BMW a little less so, but still pretty much. If you were what was called a privateer or a B-team rider, in other words, I was a sportsman, I had, you know, at this time I had already started my first company, uh, they would not give you the same equipment that they had, even if you could buy it. They wouldn't give it to you. So to me it was being a little rigged. Now in, sure, in Twins, sure. we didn't have the sort of rules and so we actually Ducati had thought that the biggest Panther they could make and that means Panther in Italian okay. Um, okay. biggest uh, Panther they could make was 750 and I had a bunch of great mechanics you know Sid Tunstall being the, the real brains behind the whole thing who made an 850cc bike and we literally beat the factory Ducati team at Daytona on that bike Wow, and, and and it let them know that they could actually make their own bike that size because they asked us later, okay, tell us, how did you do that? And so we told them we stroked the motorcycle and they thought they, it couldn't be done. And that's when Ducati really came into its own and won its first World Superbike Championship because we had showed them how to do it with the engine. Interesting. So that, Interesting. that was part of the adventure really for me was the technology of it and the, the lateral thinking, if you will. Uh, how do we beat the other guys technically? Uh, it was it was just a, a great adventure. Sure, no, that's awesome. So you're you're part of or part of a racing team. You're doing kind of World Moto Clash. Maybe do you want to kind of cover the racing team and then kind of how that evolved into kind of doing your own event or events, yeah. I should say. Yeah, it's it's like a lot of entrepreneurs who you know you're doing something and. And, you, you know, you kind of start looking at this blanks board and saying, you know, what if we did it this way? What, what You know, this is okay, but what if we were to tweak this? And what if we were to pivot here? And, and what I saw really in superbike racing was it was being under-promoted and under-produced. Gotcha. And the reason I say it is it was big, but it was not as big as it could be. Uh, the world was changing, you know, and, and it is changing even more now. Uh, with with media and content, okay. In sports, there you know we all know that content is king. As Rupert Murdoch said, content has always been and will always be the king of the media empire. So if you own the content, you know. And I had literally Jimmy Kimmel's producer Doug DeLuca tell me this. He said, "Look, if you want to make money in media, own the content. Interesting. Don't worry about the distribution. That's part of it. But really, if you own it." And he said, have you ever heard of Oprah Winfrey? And I said, yes, I think I've heard of Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> <laughs> well, she owns her own content, and that's the way to do it. So I said, I said, okay. So what I, I said then is, all right, so you, if you were to take motorsports from this sort of clubby, you know, we're all sitting around, you know, the, the FIA is behind the Creon Hotel and in Paris, you know, on the Place de la Concorde, and they all, you know, <laughs> <laughs> go out for $400 lunches every day and they talk about these stupid rules. That's how we came up with Formula One of today. That's why the, the cars sound terrible. Everybody hates it. You've only got Mercedes at the front and wins every race. And I said, you know, what if we really did it this way? Like you're a team owner and you can hire the best crew chief you want. Okay. Just as they used to do at Indianapolis when Mario Andretti won a, uh, at the Indy 500, he had Adrian Newey, who's the current designer for Red Bull Formula One team. And uh, 
and he said he was the greatest race engineer he ever saw. Interesting. Interesting. And uh, and in fact, the team owner told him they, <laughs> that they were paying Newey more than <laughs> they were paying Andretti. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so, and he said he was worth every penny of it. So, so what I, I I thought was, what if we just went back to basics and said, what if you just built the fastest bike you could, and showed up and raced for big prize money, and that you created an entertainment vehicle and a media uh, empire, if you will, around it. And sure, that's really sure. what World Moto Plus is. So what do we do? Instead of having, like, MotoGP does one and a half hours on on Sunday when we have a race, we have six hours over four days in our media package. And that's just that's just broadcast TV. Sure. I also do not subscribe to the conventional wisdom of today's venture investors who feel that everything is only digital. Because uh, as, as one analyst from RBC pointed out, the entire revenue of YouTube for one week is equal to one episode of the Big Bang Theory on CBS. Interesting. Interesting. So, and, and you may have seen Shane Smith just said this for Vice Media that, uh, you know, he finally figured out 75% of the advertising in the world goes to television. Maybe I should be on television. Maybe that's where the money is, and it is, in fact. Sure, now, will sure. it change over time, and will television be something other than what it is today? Yes, but right now, per Jeffrey Moore's book, Crossing the Chasm, digital media is stuck in the chasm. Yeah, totally agree with you. And and so what I said is, look, why don't we not time this? Why don't we just monetize everything? We'll create the content. It'll be compelling and entertaining. Some of the greatest characters you'll ever meet or in motorcycle racing, because let's face it, you're doing something that is insanely stupid. You are sitting <laughs> on top of a bike that has 200 plus horsepower that can go two, over 200 miles an hour. You have no seat belt, no roll cage. <laughs> You're sitting on top of this missile saying, okay, I'm going to try to control this thing on two patches of rubber that are about the same area as the palm of your hand. Sure. So it is, and this is why I love motorcycle racing so much as a, as doing it was it was absolutely thrilling and and i used to race against a guy who was a who was an uh let's see he was an f-16 pilot and i said to him oh this is how is this like flying your f-16 he goes heck no he said in the f-16 you're up in space you really can't, don't get the sense of speed until you bank interesting he said, here you're a couple inches off the ground you feel sure. speed immediately so that that's kind of the so we knew that we had something that was in, incredibly compelling. And and just to give you an example of how really uh, powerful motorcycle racing is from a live event standpoint, and this is another thing people say, well, we only do, we only invest in media, you know. Well, let's look at the music industry. According to everyone, Steve Jobs killed the music industry, except somehow Katy Perry made $138 million last year. Totally. So where did you make the money? Off things called concerts, Yep. which yep. is the way it kind of used to be. And so we said, gee, there's a big live gate out there. What if we actually could control that revenue stream and promote it synergistically? That's what we do at World Moto Clash, where everybody else, the track owner promotes and the, and the licensing group, they own all the other things, sponsorship, media, merchandise. So we said, what if one group owned them all and acted synergistically together?
well that's that's really what we do at world motor clash so we we hope and believe that we will have when we produce our first event probably in 2016 we will produce the greatest motorsport event in history interesting interesting that's awesome so have you guys kind of decided where this first event will potentially be or is it still kind of too early well we have 10 uh, tracks that we've qualified and, and just so you know we have some of the greatest riders in history who are part of our group i mean if, if you've seen our uh, confidential sizzle reel we have miguel duhamel from yeah Canada. i saw that yeah it's pretty cool oh he is a star i mean we had people from tony scott's uh you know group filming sure and they literally turned to us and said this guy should have his own tv show that's awesome it's, He's that funny. I mean, he's that entertaining. Sure. So, so basically, uh, we'll have ten uh, racetracks that we we have qualified, and they ha- and they're qualified basically because of safety. Okay. And, and when I raced, uh, it, a lot of the tracks were not safe. I mean, we just went there; we knew it. I mean, if you can imagine, Loudon, the old Loudon track used to have a telephone pole outside of turn one. Really? Wow. <laughs> And their idea, I'm, I'm talking about four feet off the track. Sure, wow. And their idea of safety was to put one hay bale in front of the telephone pole. Yeah, which does nothing. Which did nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, by the way, the old track also used to have a lake, which one of our guys, David Sadowski, rode somebody into. Really? Wow. And so, so it was, you know, we, they kind of thought, well, you races are all crazy anyway, so what the heck? Let's just have a race. <laughs> well, we don't we don't think it's good to kill off your heroes. Yeah, that makes sense. So in World Moto Clash, we said, you know, like we, Sears Point, I've raced there many times, you know, in Sonoma, California. It, it's just not safe. Gotcha. And we 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 don't want to put people in a in a position where. You know, they they stand if they have a crash, if they stand less than a better chance of coming out, you know, with their lives. That doesn't work for us. Sure, so, sure. so we we pick ten tracks around the country, and they're all you know big tracks. Uh, so I'll give you an example: a uh, Circuit of the Americas, where they have the Formula One race and the MotoGP race. Uh, Eric Paradis, who's the track manager there, called World Moto Clash the Great American Dream Race. That's awesome. And uh, he said, this is going to, he said, you'll have 160,000 people here for the race. Oh, wow. So it will become one of the biggest sporting events in the country and certainly one of the biggest in the world as well. But, but we won't, that's a safe track, for example. Now, uh, there are a lot of new tracks that are also really good, like New Orleans, NOLA, another fabulous track. And again, we're throwing a party for World Moto Clash and the race is the reason for the party. Oh, nice. So there's no greater town to party in the New Orleans. Totally. And uh, and then we do Barber and, and Birmingham and New Jersey Motorsports Park. Now, in New Jersey Motorsports Park, we've said that the sport has been underproduced and underpromoted. Our promotional budget for New Jersey is 10 times the biggest budget they've ever had. Oh, wow. And the reason is, Kevin, we within a 100-mile radius, they have 18 million people. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it was that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, so but they didn't have the budget there. You know, th- so this is where tracks are a little bit different than 
than we see sport. We see sport as, okay, we control the media, the promotion, it all works synergistically together. When we go to a sponsor, we say, why do, can we guarantee you're going to get the coverage? Because we're shooting it. Uh, and what we did okay. was we, we partnered up with IMG. You know, we don't have the network shoot it. We, we do a, a barter deal with them so that we control all the production. And that way we always know it's the best. It's, it's up to a standard, not down to a cost. And we can say to those sponsors, how do we guarantee we're going to show your logo because we're shooting it? Right. Uh, Interesting. So, that makes a lot so, of sense. Yeah, it, it does integrate all those things. But if you really look at, you know, Pricewaterhouse did a very good study of North American sports revenues. And it's like a pie where in, in 2016, about uh, 28% of it is actually the live gate. That's the largest part. 27% is media. Then you have sponsorship at 24, and the, and the rest of it is merchandise. But if you create a, a property that works on all of those levels, and it works for all stakeholders. Now, what's wrong with the, the thing as it's set up today? There's no money. I made more money back in the 80s than they can make today. Interesting. Racing motorcycles. Okay. So... So what's happened basically is they've kind of ruined the ecosystem, unlike NASCAR, which has a great ecosystem. And so we're bringing some of that sort of methodology, and unlunlike NASCAR where their average age of, view, of viewer is 53, our average age, oh well, I should say 70 percent of our fans are under the age of 35. Oh interesting. okay. Makes much younger, much fresher sport. Um, and, and yet we do a lot of things like UFC did. U, UFC uh, was not really launched by the fact that the Fertitta brothers, you know, gave Dana White the money to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really launched by Craig Pelleggian over at Pilgrim Television producing The Ultimate Fighter. And okay. the reason for that was he was, and he told us this, we sat down with Craig, and we were going to use Craig for uh, production of our reality stuff until we hooked up with Tony Scott. And then... You know, as Craig would admit, I'm not Tony Scott. <laughs> you know, I didn't do Top Gun. <laughs> sure, I didn't do Leo's God. So, so basically, what uh, Ultimate Fighter was doing was training the audience on what the sport was really all about. It wasn't just people out there trying to beat each other up. That there, there are tactics and strategies and moves and so forth. And then also getting them invested in the fighters. Sure. That so, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we've got two reality programs. One is called The Privateers. And this is about independent teams trying to pick their rider to get into World Motoclash. Interesting. Okay. So how did you guys or like, is, it, is this on right now? Or like, where can people find more information about this? Well, it will be on very shortly. And it's okay. fully developed and big like Privateers are one of our teammates on on privateers is not only andrew castner the guy i told you about before and sure von verity sure. and and von incidentally he who he's done he's he's done two feature films but he also has done work for people like Hart, like eminem sure. cameron sure. crow you know some other famous movie star which he has an nda with who can't mention his name but he does the work for him got you so so basically these are some of the most talented people in hollywood and uh, when I showed him this sport, and, he, and our other guy, our superstar, Michael Simon. Michael Simon is the go-to director for Mark Burnett and Steven Spielberg. Oh, wow. On television. And and what did he do? He did things like 
Survivor, every Survivor finality for the first 19. Oh, wow. He then did, he then did Apprentice. Uh, he then did uh, Rockstar NXS, Rockstar yep. Super Lover. So he is, uh, and he did the one night with the, uh, the Bee Gees, which was the largest viewed uh, music show ever. Oh, interesting. 300, yeah, 300 million people saw it. Um, so I, I showed these guys this motorcycle racing, and I remember Michael saying to me, how come I don't know about this? This is the most exciting sport I've ever seen. Sure. And I said, you know, what do you think about the way it's being presented? And he said, it's too big and too small. Okay. And so I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, they're shooting it from too far away, and it's too small in that they don't give you a scope of there are 100,000 people here. You know, why don't we see that? Why don't we see the excitement? Why don't we see the violence of these bikes? I mean, imagine you're sitting on a bike that has the same weight to horse, or, or I should put it this way. In order for a Porsche Carrera Turbo to have the same weight to horsepower ratio, it would have to have 3,500 horsepower. Okay, interesting. So seven times the amount of horse, weight to horsepower as a Porsche Turbo. Okay, wow. That's how you talk about acceleration, that's how violent it is. Sure. So, but, and, and Tony Scott made an interesting comment to me. He said, look, I couldn't, if I, you know, and Cruz, as you know, loves motorcycles. Yep. He, uh, he was on a motorcycle in Top Gun. Tony put him on that. He became addicted to them. He, he rode a motorcycle in the first, uh, in, his, in his appearance scene in Days of Thunder, which was all, it was supposed to be about Formula One. Then Fox bought NASCAR, rights to NASCAR, and so they had to switch it to, to NASCAR. Oh, okay. So that's, that's how it became NASCAR. And Tony Scott originally said to Jerry Bruckheimer, how am I going to make NASCAR look interesting? <laughs> and Bruckheimer said, that's why Fox hired you. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So, so, but he said to me, if I wanted to do a motorcycle movie right with Cruz right after uh, Days of Thunder, I couldn't have done it. And I said, why? He said, I can't hang an 80-pound uh, Panaflex camera off a motorcycle. Got you. Now, to come technology. Sure. And the sure. camera's shrinking down and everything becoming wireless and digital as opposed to on film. It, you know, Tony, and unfortunately Tony, as you know, passed away. Yeah. But this was his pet project, World Motor Clash. He was oh, like, this okay. is going to change everything. He was, I remember being in a uh, Scott free and he was, you know, just coming out of the office of, of, uh, of Ridley and, uh, Jules Daly, who was the head of Ridley Scott associates was there with Brad Pitt and saying, you know, Brad, Brad's got to be at this race. He wants to be at the race. And so, and, and Tom Cruise saying he wanted to have a riding lesson with two of his buddies with one of our guys, Jamie James. And Jamie said, yeah, I've been trying for six months to get, uh, the same date for his, his, Cruz and his two buddies, and so Tony said to him, "Who who are his two buddies?" And he said, "Will Smith and David Beckham." <laughs> and Tony I, said, right then and there, he said, "You'll never get their schedules." <laughs> yeah, exactly. That that's got to be crazy. Try to try to get those three guys in the same room at the same time, right? Yeah, they wanted to, you know, hey, we'll, we're going to be taught by this five-time national champion, and this is going to be so cool. Now he did tell me too that Cruz is absolutely nuts on the bike. Really. Yeah. Um, he said he, well, I, I don't, maybe I shouldn't tell too many stories here, but I'll tell you one. All right. So they, they, Cruz can't go anywhere because he has the paparazzi all over him. So he has a house up in Alpine okay. and 
he and Tony would go up there and they would leave his house at at midnight. Okay. To go out and ride. Interesting. And he had a, a Ducati Desmo Sedici cruise that he took the bodywork off of. And they were and and Tony had a Ducati too, and they were riding up Pacific Coast Highway. And Tony said he looked down and he was doing 125 up Pacific Coast Highway. <laughs> and he said Cruz was pulling away from him like he was standing still. Oh wow. So he was like, you know, and he rides with, you know, George Clooney and, sure. and Brad Pitt and so forth. But he said, you know, Cruz is just like, he's out there. <laughs> so when when Tony showed Tom Cruise World Motoclash, we had done this, you know, Andrew and I did a video, Confidential Scissor Reel for him. At the end of it, we said, this is the next big thing. And at the end of it, Tony said, Tom turned to him and said, they're right. This is the next big thing. That's awesome. So I'm curious then to kind of you're involved in a bunch of different things and obviously like this is kind of your your latest and greatest um you know project and idea and you know it's coming together but you also have this entertainment company um how, is that tied into World Moto Clash at all or right. or how does that kind of tie into it because you mentioned you're you're filming your own stuff you're handling kind of everything your yourself so you can keep the quality to the highest caliber how does that fit or not fit with with everything it 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 fits in really well kevin because you know content is king but sports sure. is king of tv sure for and, sure you know as we see with march madness now you know you'll you take something like true tv where they normally get like twenty thousand dollars for a 30 second spot and they get 195,000 for a spot on March Madness. Sure. Sure. Uh, same thing. What's the number one rated show on TV? No, it's not the big bang theory. It's Sunday night football. Yeah. I was going to say, it's gotta be football, right? Yeah. And, and then Super Bowl is probably still the, what the most expensive advertising spot of the year. Yeah. It's, it was over $5 million this year. And, and all we know is it's going to be more next year. Sure. Now, so, if you if you look at it and you say okay so we we you know we've got all these entertaining people we so we have a sports property world motoclash we felt that was a sport that really needed to be reinvented right but we have a lot of other great ideas and one of them is a, is something that the viewers or tech people will be really interested in and I love Silicon Valley that's a great show sure but I also love House of Cards, and I think if you put those two together, you get one of the shows which is in New Guard Entertainment, gotcha. which is Vultures in the Valley. Okay. And Vultures in the Valley is a scripted show that New Guard is producing. Okay. Which I, well, we have been told by a fellow who worked for Dick Wolf, you know, who's one of the top TV producers of all time. He totally. does all the Law and Order stuff and so forth. This guy... Uh, when he had the meeting with us, he said, Mr. Crane, you have a masterpiece here. That's awesome. Congrats, man. So so what it is is you've got a venture capital group where two people are total sociopaths and they do anything <laughs> <laughs> to screw their entrepreneurs or their investors. As long as they make money, they don't care what happens. Sure, okay. And so they they are the Kevin Spacey character, you know. Love it. We're, we're, they're above everything. It's just win, 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 win. The other two people are actually trying to build companies. Okay. And, and so it's sort of juxtaposed that there's a right way to do it, a wrong way. 
as we've seen by some latest headlines, and some people are not doing it the right way. Uh, I'm not being judgmental, but I'm saying it makes for great TV. And when I, I gave it to only two venture capitalists to read because I wanted to see what they would say. Got you. And one guy wrote back, and he's with one of the most successful VCs I know, and said, this is brilliant. That's awesome. So when's and it he, out, or when's it coming out? It, it, it's... Well, we're in development on, on that. And, okay. and the problem right now, this is the big problem. We are we need a, the showrunner to do the rest of the show. We've got six episodes done. Got you. And it started out, oh, so we'll just do, you know, six episodes. Sure. And then sure. we took it to ITV, you know, it was a big TV group. And they said, no, 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 this is like, we need 13 episodes. Ah, uh, okay. It's a money machine. Awesome. So... We're like, okay, now we have to find a showrunner. And it's really difficult to find showrunners who have lived it, who, sure, who understand sure. what's really going on. I mean, I, I, I have had people literally who were entrepreneurs that I, I allowed to read certain episodes because it was in kind of their space. And every one of them said to me, I learned something in that. Interesting. That's awesome, that though. Now, the other cool thing about Vultures in the Valley, and this will intrigue a lot of your listeners as well, is we're making it into a video game. Interesting. Okay. So, so it's like Monopoly, but with a real you know, sort of social sandbox where you can make good decisions and bad decisions. Right. Okay. Interesting. So that'll launch with when the show launches? Yeah, it'll be, it'll be well, it'll probably be after that. But sure. It'll be totally synergistic because the show is going to go on and on and on. I mean, you can imagine there are just endless stories that you can put together on it. So totally. that's another one. Then we also have a really another project we're really excited about. Andrew's a, a great guitarist. I mean, he he's he's played with everyone, and 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 I was a formerly a guitarist as well. I mean, I still play guitar, but you know, sure. not the level he does. I, I used to practice six hours a day. Now I don't practice six hours a month. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, so we came up with a, sh a show called Guitar Stars. And really what it does is, you remember Guitar Hero sold totally. $2 billion. Yep. Well, imagine this. So think of sort of like The Voice or American Idol. And they're, and here's the irony. There are a lot more good guitar players than there are singers. Totally. You know, guitar players are made, singers are born. Sure, yep. Like Pavarotti's voice was given to him by God. He didn't get trained to do that. Totally. No, 100% agree. So so what we do is we take, uh, it's sort of like the, the American Idol voice uh, platform, except we throw in a whole bunch of other cool things because we don't only do the guitar, we do the vocals that go along with it. And there are so many great guitar songs. Oh, Sure. Know? For sure. We have lists of actually 400 of them, and we stopped listing because there were just so many great ones. So then what do we do? We take these winners, and we put them into a live show. Okay, interesting. These shows are, are called four-wall shows because we pay for all the production and so forth, and we've got this lined up in uh, the first one uh, will we'll come out in Vegas, and we have Michael Simon directing, incidentally. Oh, wow. So it will be just an extraordinary display of, of music, guitar work, dance, singing. It, it, you know, it, it will be one of the biggest shows on TV instantly. Yeah, that's so awesome. That's, 
that's another show that we have in development at NewGuard. Okay. Uh, my hope for NewGuard, and, and this is why we kind of led with World Moto Clash. World Moto Clash can generate, oh, I would say a, it will in less than five years it will have accumulated a billion dollars in EBITDA. Wow. So what we were going to do is actually self-fund some of that from World Moto Clash. Whether or not we end up doing that, I think, you know, we're starting to get people to understand that, uh, for example, the music business isn't dead. It's simply changed. Sure. Um, sure. You know, we can, and, and here's another thing you've, you've probably heard of Mamma Mia, you know, yep. that old thing. Mamma Mia is now over $2.2 billion in box office gates. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. That's, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. So, so what we have is, and, and we, and here's an interesting part about guitar stars in the live show you you always have a guest star and so like two-thirds of the show is the guitar star show and every show can be different sure sure uh we even allow people to vote on like what songs you want to hear this night interesting uh, we interesting. have we have some of them who, that are standard and then we have some uh a vast majority of it's new every time but then we have a visiting guest star like you know you could have eddie van halen or sure. you could have sure. billy idol and uh and uh uh, Steve Stevens, you know, and doing their stuff. I mean, from White Wedding, totally, and, yeah. and it's just a fantastic, fantastic celebration of music. No, I, I think that's awesome. So, so that, that's that's our other thing, really, in, in New Guard right now. Thanks for listening to part one of two with Stanford Crane. Thanks for listening. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.